1: I'd like to welcome Michael Zani, the CEO of Predictive Index, on the show. Michael, welcome.
2: Thank you to ha- for having me, Michael. Laura, looking forward to this. Zap right
1: into it. Can you tell us a little bit about your career journey and how that led you to Predictive Index and your latest book?
2: I was a ne'er do well sailor uh, that I, I grew up racing sailboats competitively. Uh, Made a living as a professional sailor, and then it w- wound up as a coach for the 1996 Olympics uh, for the sport of sailing. And I, I didn't realize it at the time, but I started going on the sort of people journey back then, you know, trying to get high end athletes and performance out of out of sailboats where you have fixed crews and getting the most out of your people. I, I stayed in the marine industry for a few years, fell in love with business, and, and realized I needed to get some better training. The, 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 the sailing industry is, is not necessarily where the world's best business minds go to apply their trade. You know, ended up going to business school and ran into a business model called a search fund, where you buy used companies with other people's money, you put yourself in charge. And you turn these companies around, sell them, do it again. And I've done that four times. Um, the Predictive Index is my is my latest company. And I was a client for 10 years before we bought it. So it's that like the old Victor Kayam. I like the product so much, we bought the company. Um, but I really have a passion for people, talent, related um, you know, missions. And uh, the Predictive Index uh, is by far my, my dream job.
0: You want to tell us a little bit about Predictive Index and also then how the, your book that you wrote is related to
2: it? I'd, l- I'd love to. So the, the Predictive Index is a company founded in 1955. 1955. We bought it after 60 years. But, you know, sort of 10 years before we acquired the company, we became clients. And back then it was just a pencil and paper behavioral assessment. Um, It is, you know, people have probably taken the Myers-Briggs or the DISC. So they have some familiarity with behavioral type assessments. This one was very simple, very short, totally tuned for business um, and business outcomes. And it was just stuck in pencil and paper land. My business partner, Daniel and I were like, man, if we could buy this company and turn it into a software platform, there's so much more that it could do for, for people. And you know, but we, we were fans. we tried to buy the company in '09 and almost got there, didn't. finally bought the company in 2014 and basically had to refound the company, take the core behavioral science and turn it into a software platform that had a, a lot more you know applicability to the modern world. The science is the same, but how people use it you know example if if michael became my new boss he might want to run in run a report on on the two of us on the joys and frustrations and and likewise laura if you were our ultimate boss and you were doing some work on the team you could run some you know what is our team dynamic how are we alike or dissimilar and how do we fit for the work to be done all can be done through algorithm you know isn't that the founding family didn't really fathom that when you know, after 60 years of pencil and paper, but you know, we sort of started reinventing this sort of construct of talent optimization, which actually, you know, got me to write the book, The Science of Dream Teams. I took a lot of our data science, took a lot of our our tools, a lot of our case studies. We've got 10,000 clients to, you know, build, you know, little science case studies as well as vignettes about how you hire people, how you create cultures, how you assemble high-performing teams and the joys and frustrations of that.
1: Well, two questions. Uh, there's so many high-quality assessments out there. And I'm curious, what you what do you think is the unique value proposition or what what makes predictive index different than the Myers-Briggs and the disc that you'd mentioned?
2: What's, it, what's interesting is my, my wife got me into psychometrics. She's a Myers-Briggs master practitioner. And so we're a dual psychometric household, which is going to probably make <laughs> our kids clinically uh, insane for uh, them. But I, I I believe in psychometric tools. You know, if you're if you're married to one, and you're using it responsibly, keep using it. You know, I, I I feel that fundamentally, it's it's good to have that that data. You know, our particular take on it is is not that our science is necessarily better or worse than anyone anyone else's. It's really what we do with the data afterward to make it really applicable to businesses so that they can use this data to to actually take action. You know, it's not that just, I read this report on me and put it in the circular file uh, or possibly gave it to a coworker or spouse, friend to, to learn about, but it's just what you do with the data. I think with, with respect to our, you know, methodology, it's incredibly short. It's a lightweight, you get really rich data which means you can use it from ceo you know to sandwich artist you know and everything in between so you can actually create a data model across your whole company there are some tools that take 90 minutes and you have higher fidelity if you take 90 minutes but that they're only going to use it for the c suite or vp and above they're not going to build a data model for the entire company so that all all people all elements, all nooks and crannies of a company can can really benefit from that that data and results.
1: Well, what surprised me is, is I took the assessment before the show so I could do some, some background research. And I, I was shocked. I thought, oh, it's only two questions, six minutes. How good can it be? And it nailed me. It's like, you're the maverick. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, I like that. I like that label. And then it described me. It was like my horoscope. Uh, it, it talked about my blind spots and I was like, yeah, yeah, that's true too. But what I really loved is, is how it said I should be managed. And I was like, yes, give me autonomy, keep your door open if I need help and we're good to go. What is it doing with just two questions? Like, how can it be so accurate with really, I think so little
2: data that I'm inputting in? Well, so it, it it's, it's, it's actually, I think a lot of the credit is for our test methodology. This is a stimulus response tool. So we asked you a question and flashed you 86 adjectives. And you probably only gave us credit for the things that you checked, but we used the things that you didn't check as well. So we had 86 data points. Then we asked you a second question and you had 86 data points. And we use the ratio of that in order to determine your behavioral drives and factors. And I think the the simplicity and elegance of it is you, it, because it's stimulus response, you felt good about what you checked. Some people checked just 12 words. Some people checked 40. We didn't force you to pick a lot or a little. You checked what you checked. And you checked. You didn't check what you didn't check. Like you probably, anything to do with rules, you probably stayed away from. You know, anything to do with putting your thumbprint on stuff, you kind of gravitated towards yeah. And that's, I know that because you said you were a maverick, yeah. but what's interesting is we didn't say like in the Myers-Briggs vernacular, they might say, gee, Michael, are you pressure prompted or are you an early starter? Now you might be like, well, I'm actually pressure prompted, but I don't want my employer to know that. I'm going to check early starter. Cause that's a very business thingy, mm. businessy thingy to do. So th- there's just more judgment when you create, Questions and their forced choice, and they have it. It's sort of like, well, it depends. You know, if it's something I like, I start early. If it's something I don't like, I'm pressure prompted. So, I think a lot of it is in our test methodology, and it. You I mean that the this, the science is excellent. It's it's been validated, but that, like I said, science shouldn't differentiate. I I think the beauty is it's fast, it's accurate, and you enjoyed it. Yeah, I was,
1: I was, I was pretty impressed. So kudos to you. Uh, my, my final question before I hand off to Laura is, could you share us a story about how the predictive index helped a company in regards to creating a positive workplace environment?
2: I want to give a, a small vignette. Uh, Jim Cook, uh, the founder of uh, Samuel Adams Boston beer company has been a client for 25 plus years. And I had the pleasure of interviewing him and, uh he, he actually gave uh his second wife current wife the uh the behavioral assessment before their second date so the first date went well enough they gave you know the, the behavioral assessment and um she actually sits on his board um she's quite a business person herself she founded a cord blood uh company that was bigger than boston beer company in valuation so no slouch you know but he actually gives this vignette where this this kid comes into him, has an accounting degree. He's applying for an accountant, and he, and he and he sits down talking with him. And he was very involved with hiring early at Boston Beer Company. And this kid has a, a a sales profile, not an accounting profile. And he goes to this he goes to this kid and he says, "Do you like accounting?" The guy goes, "Eh." He's like, "Why'd you go into accounting?" He goes, "Well, my, both of my parents were accountants. They said I should go into accounting. They had great careers." it provided for the family. They thought I should do it. I listened to them. I went to college. I, I became an accountant. And he goes, yeah, but yeah, you don't really like it, do you? And he goes, no. He goes, would you like to do sales at our company? And he goes, sales? No one's ever asked me to do sales he goes, you've got a great sales profile. We'll train you. So 25 years later, this, this person is working in senior sales positions for Boston Beer Company. Jim Cook saved him from making a mistake, you know, going down this accounting career path. I mean, Michael- I don't need to tell you, you probably wouldn't like to be a controller, given that you're a maverick. It's too constrained of a position. You would make a better salesperson, actually. It could have been you that he saved. So that little vignette of it can really help save people when used appropriately to find their sort of place in this world. And the world's complicated. But I think when you when you take companies in mass and and do this and find out. How do you optimize talent across the organization is where you really, truly unlock power so that every person is in a job that they can be successful at. It doesn't mean they're going to be good at it. They can be successful. The behavioral and cognitive drives are right. So you're like, you can be successful in it. Then it teaches people how to you, how to modify themselves to get the most out of their relationships, whether they're managing up down across. And we do have examples of companies who do this en masse where they're they're doing it. And it it's that's actually one of the only things they do. We have Freeport MacMoran, a mining company. They actually hire kids in Peru with a third grade education. No resume. All they do is do a behavioral and cognitive assessment. And they're like, you operate machinery, you're going into the management track you here's a shovel and they're handing like different jobs out to these individuals where they actually don't actually speak the same language and there's no resumes and there's no real interview process that you you can build entire organizations based around this science to with really great results one of my one of my favorite stories about this is there is a company in Shanghai which is running a private Naval Academy, they're putting sailors on boats, training them for four years. And they put them into different tracks, engineering track, uh, navigation track, uh, simple seaman track, captain track. And they're taking these kids out of farms in China and teaching them how to be merchant mariners. Because the Chinese merchant mariners are basically taking over all, all boats because the cost of labor and he's created a naval academy with ultimate performance and he, can't, he can he he's a former maersk employee one of the largest shipping companies in the world they also use the predictive index and he just goes i just took maersk model and applied it to to the chinese workforce
0: Wow, that is so interesting. So that's that was my next question. Is so, what are those conditions? I guess what kinds of companies do you work with, and in what which scenarios? It sounds like some of it's in kind of hiring placement kinds of scenarios. Maybe also in development, you know, internal job changes. Like just curious, like where does it make the most sense to use it,
2: Laura? Thank you for asking. Our, our number one use case is hiring and hire hire for fit. Except that is actually, I think, the, while it's the most obvious ROI for people preventing bad hires, the companies that are really unlocking potential use it heavily on the post-hire side.
0: Mm-hmm. They use
2: it on the person-to-person interaction. They use it on the on the team dynamics and on, on career pathing within organizations. And, and today, it's a fantastic tool that people are having a hard time hiring. No surprise. Ah, uh, people are trying to retain. Also, no surprise. So you have these internal marketplaces. Say, Laura, you you get your first job, and you're like, I like the company. The job was okay, right? And what you're trying to do is you say, well, Laura was a great talent. Let's let's find out what would Laura be good at in our organization, and we or the company invests in you, and all of that credit when you invest in someone, when you care about their career when you help them be successful in their next roles, all of that good stuff accrues to the, to that company and that relationship, you're less likely to churn. You probably don't have to pay quite as competitively before someone. I mean, you have have to be in the ballpark because money is an important piece of retention, but it's all that other good stuff. And you're enabling people when people feel like they can be successful in their job, when, when people feel like they know how to communicate with their peers, their boss, they're happier, they're more productive, and they go home with more energy. Computer. So that you, you you know, let's face it, work is important. But the real reason we work is for when we go home, to have all that good stuff to be a, a better spouse, a better sibling, a better parent, more patient when you're homeschooling. All that happens because you you're getting really good, you know, engagement and joy at work because people can be successful.
0: That's cool. That's cool. So how do you think about your own life relative to all this work you do at Predictive Index? So that we always like to kind of talk to people we interview about we're, you know, not really able to compartmentalize very well you know, the stuff we do for our careers and the stuff we do outside of our careers. So curious about how that overlaps for you. You know, you talked before about having two psychometricians in the house, which uh, I'm also, I'm married to, my husband is an organizational psychologist too. So it's, it's, you know, it's weird. Um, And I do feel for our children, that's for sure. Um, But curious how kind of your work philosophy and personal, you know, personal life philosophy intersect.
2: Well, the, you know, and I said at at the beginning that I, I I started going on this people journey when I was coaching at the '96 Olympics and sort of that professional sailing. Like, I was really good at sailing, but when you start coaching Olympians, you realize no matter how good you are, there's someone who's better, and you're managing people who are better than you as a coach, and you're trying you're trying to get the most out of them, and it it, it harkens back to. To, to business when, when Daniel, my business partner, and I bought our first company, we were pretty much better. We just got out of Harvard MBA. We were high energy, high powered. We could probably do most jobs better than most of our employees. Now, it wasn't a high, super high caliber employee base when We bought that company. I can say unequivocally now that every single person who reports into me and all of their direct reports do their jobs way better than I could. So I'm, I'm fully in my coach mode Where I'm trying to get these people to be their best, and I can't step in and say, "Let me show you how to do it." They're they're already better than me, so it's it's like my passion for sailing, always that sort of teaching coach mentality, has become just so important with business because I'm just trying to get unlock these super talented people. They work for I have the joy of them working for me, and it, it. it bring one it brings me happiness you know i'm going to that point in my career where the the mentoring teaching coaching piece is just so energizing but it it it's it's also the act that if you can get five 10 20 more out of someone and send them home happier and create this friendship this bond where you're like you helped me with my career you care about me that is just that's gold
0: completely I love it
1: this this is great stuff I <clears throat> I'm a sailor as well and uh, it's super impressive that you were uh, the coach for the 96 Olympic sailing team and I'm curious how that experience is allowing you to coach high performing teams so I know that your your last answer was tapping into that but are there things that you do specifically this is so interesting like how do you coach someone who's Better than you in the thing that you're coaching them at. Like, how do you? What do you do?
2: Well, this this was um, so. Like, a, a good teacher teaches a subject one way. Well, a great teacher can modify themselves in order to connect to more, or ideally, all of the students. So, this construct. I had this one athlete, one of the most gifted sailors I've ever met. Just savant, intense. Um, one of our best coaches, uh, 20 years my senior, incredible knowledge, like one of the best eyes for sail shape and tuning that I've ever seen. He and this woman, when they talked, he spoke in analogies and she was very direct and literal. And they talked and it was like, it was like an atomic, you know, reaction. It did not go well. So she's like, never let, I won't use their names, never let him ever speak to me again. That was, I was like her personal coach at the time. And I was like, huh, one of the best people on the Olympic sailing team never let me speak to him again. So I would go talk to him, get all of his knowledge, translate it into a language that she was willing and able to hear. I was like, literally a foreign language translator. And she's like, that was fantastic advice. And I'm like, thanks. You know, as I'm really pointing at this person who deserves credit. So this idea of modifying yourself as a leader, as a manager, as a business person so that you can connect and get the most out of those people. I was like, I need to figure this out. Like, this is really powerful. That was one vignette. The second is if you are on, Professional sailing is is not a great professional sport. I probably don't need it. Most people have like, I've never even heard of professional sailing. I was paid by wealthy people to be the hired rock star to, to to enable them to win on any given weekend. And you jump onto this boat with 12 people. Some of them are close friends of the owner, usually a rich male, and or their relations. Some one or two might be other professional sailors, but you jump on board. And I would always ask, are we, is the mandate to win this weekend? or Are we training and learning for a a bigger, better event somewhere down the track? And tragically, most of these characters, like we win now all costs. You're like, yeah, I figured that's how it normally is. So you sit here, you're in the same boat. Now that's not just a parable. Like you're literally in the same boat. You can't get rid of anybody and you would find people who would second guess management effectively. Mm. And when you're on a 12-person boat, you're you're close enough that you can hear. And sailing's like baseball where you don't win 100% of the time. You're battling the wind and the waves and the vagaries. You you try and win, I don't know, 60% of the time, make the right call. So when someone would get in your ear about like, oh, we made two really bad calls and they would start getting negative, and and putting these seeds of doubt you're like who is that person on this boat like who keeps che- second guessing what we're doing we need to be leaning in to this not like oh here we go again and you're like oh that's the owner's nephew and you're like okay so you'd realize you're in the same boat the cultural dynamic of every person really matters and there are some untouchables kind of sounds like business you know like owner's nephew. And trying to work around those dynamics was really powerful. There were things that I learned in that crucible crucible of 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 that 12 person high performance team on the same boat that you can apply to business. Now I take a much more aggressive stance as a leader now. It's like I don't tolerate you know the, the owner's nephew. You know, you're like you got a bad attitude like that. I'm sorry, there are no sacred cows with respect to culture. You must go.
0: I love the sailing stories. And I can just tell Michael's going, oh my gosh, I've been there, right, Michael? <laughs> um, this has been so great, Mike. Thank you so much for all of these ideas. And it's been really cool to learn more about Predictive Index and your book. I wonder if there's any words of wisdom or final kind of thoughts you want to leave us with as we wrap up?
2: I, I just would encourage everyone, you know, we the business context for this you know, happiness at work that I think we have such a responsibility to truly enable people to be their happiest at work because we make the world a better place when we make people happy at work. Like I said, they go home to to be better neighbors and and we need that today. We need community and and it starts with if people can find joy and happiness at work and purpose that we do our part to make the world a better place.
0: That's awesome. That's a great way to end. Thank you so much for your time. Laura, today.
2: Michael, it's been really a treat. You are true professionals in this space. And uh, I, I, I still look forward to staying connected with you.
0: Us too. Us too. So much.
2: So much fun. Thank you for your time today.
1: We hope you've enjoyed this episode. If you'd like to hear future episodes, be sure to subscribe to the happy at work podcast and leave us a review with your thoughts. Are you interested in speaking on a future episode or want to collaborate with us? Let us know. You can send us an email at admin at happyatworkpodcast.com. And
0: lastly, follow us on LinkedIn or Twitter for even more happiness. See you soon.